and welcome to What Goes Around. I'm Eamon Murtar. And I'm Anne Frankenstein. And in this week's show, Anne continues her full frontal assault on me and my love of music. <laughs> got a lot of rage. What I really need is to sit down and listen to the new album from Pharaoh Sanders and Floating Points, an album which Eamon has also fallen in love with. We're going to dig deep on that record in today's episode. We certainly are. And we're going to go around the world and try and answer the question, why is it that country and Western music does so well in Ireland? Now, we did talk to my cousin, Kieran Walsh, about this uh, a long time ago in Series 1. And we mentioned how um, the Dublin City Council came a cropper when they tried to ban Garth Brooks from having an extra concert in the city. And Ireland went crazy at them. It was full-scale civil war for a while until, of course, Garth got his concerts. But uh, we're going to talk about why it is that country and western seems to find such a passionate home in rural Ireland. A Garth Brooks controversy, not our finest hour. But the piece is lovely. Looking forward to chatting to Rob about that. And also, of course, this week we welcome our wonderful guest, Zoe Ajanyo, who's going to be sharing her phonographic memories with us. She's uh, a celebrity chef who happens to hail from both Ireland and Ghana. So her musical background and her background in general is this incredible melting pot. Uh, shall we get into it, Eamon? Let's pod. Let's let's get into the pod. Let's get into it. <laughs> Can you get into it? Get a just... knife and a fork and a spoon. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's let's make it look at, like the pod is a big pot of soup. Let's <laughs> climb right That's in. what I was trying to imply. I know I got that now. I was late. <laughs> well, let's do it. Come on. Let's do it. Pod-ing. Pod-ing. And Frankenstein, please let us know what goes around in your head. What goes around? Well, summer is fast approaching and uh, the weather, well, I mean, it's kind of technically snowing, but I presume the weather will get warm at some point. <laughs> yes, I'd be going, it's spring, it's spring, it's spring. Oh, it's snowing. Oh, it's spring, it's spring, it's spring. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Still gives you a chance to play Prince, doesn't it? So, it well, know. but it's really limiting what I can talk about on the radio. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. you want to be like, hey, here's a cool, hot and sexy summer record just for you, cool in the gang. But then you fucking look outside and it's just grey and sleet and snowing mm. and miserable. Um, but summer will eventually be here. And I was reminded the other day, with summer comes other people's music. It's just an inevitability that uh, we can't seem to get away from. And um, I remember Grayson Perry tweeted um, last summer uh, about how hell is other people's music. And he was complaining about everywhere he goes, you know, if he's out on his bike or just uh, walking down the street or sitting on public transport, which I'm sure he doesn't do very often. But, you know, even just sitting in his garden. You can, and he lives in, in London as well. I think he lives in Islington. So if you live in London, then just suck it up, mate. You move to London. That's what happens. It's everywhere. There's like 10 million people outside your house. Why do people... No, no. I no. put my foot down. <laughs> that wasn't my foot. That was me slamming my phone down. I, I say, disagree I've never seen that. you raise that foot that high. <laughs> <laughs> I don't raise my foot that high for anyone not even you why on earth when in a, in a world where we have bluetooth headphones where we have very sophisticated personal music technology why on earth 
do I have to suffer through someone else's music just because it's summertime? Why? What goes through the brain of someone who's like, I'm going to play my music out loud so that people from miles around are going to have to listen to it as well as me. I cannot understand this. As you can probably tell, and you probably knew already, this is a pet subject of mine. I, I can't get I can't get into the psychology breathe, of it. Breathe, breathe, No, I'm too angry to breathe. I don't know, Alyssa, I would, I would refer you to the song Synthesizer by Electric Six, which has the marvellous chorus. It goes, uh, you can't ignore my techno. And I think there's something about that where, you know, it, it, it's you putting your, your flag out in the world and telling people, this is who I am. Listen to my techno. <laughs> but that's what's so pathetic. That's, what, that's why I hate it even more. Because oh, it's, it's pathetic like... to you now, but when you were 17, I'm sure you were out there playing some die a bit of I wish someone had told me it was pathetic music. so I could have fucking knocked it off I just hate I, I hate the idea that there's kids who are like I'm so important in the world and it's so important that I show you who I am that I'm going to invade your personal space with my terrible music and I just don't want to teenagers make me want to die anyway they just make me cringe <laughs> to the point that it's painful so I really don't want to know about their awkwardness don't combined with the fact that they're invading my lovely silent space yeah. I mean I just it's just so depressing to open up your balcony doors on the first warm day or like hint of warmth of the year and be be blasted with the distant mm. sounds of several pe- people's awful music yeah, blending together. I just together. think that's city living, mate. That's how it, that's how it is. You know, you just got to, you know, you got to roll with the punches a little bit on that. I think, um, have you ever had a neighbour that played really good music that you actually really appreciated? Because okay. I often wonder like, if there is that neighbour out there because I've got to move next to them. <laughs> well, so here's this is a, a kind of, uh, this is a two-pronged thing. If a neighbour was playing my favourite song all day, every day, if a neighbour was playing Paul Simon's Graceland on a loop, I wouldn't give a shit. I want to hear music when I want to hear music. And I do not want, this is ironic given what I do for a living, I don't want to hear someone else's selections mm. i'm not interested in what they want to listen to i want to listen to music as and when i want to listen to it other times i like silence but i did live below a guy in my last place one of the reasons i i had to move my upstairs neighbor um used to he had a problem with the neighbors above him and so he used to put on um this uh grime cassette tape he had a cassette tape of some grime that he taped off the radio years ago and he used to blast that really loudly to try and irritate his upstairs neighbors and obviously I was caught in the crosshairs of that I used to have to text and be like Max what the fuck are you doing now I have to suffer from both of you and sometimes he would put on he was a big fan of Donald Byrd so sometimes he'd put on Donald Byrd and even then I'd just be like Max I don't I don't want to hear this I'm not no one wants to hear your music ever Oof, well, you Full are stop. tough to please, aren't you? <laughs> I'm not silenced. The sim- most simple thing in the world, the absence of music. Oh, man. Nothing yeah, pleases yeah. me more. You should, you should like have a like a, a John Cage themed radio station. <laughs> Listen, when <laughs> I'm picking, last out nothing all day long. When I'm picking it, it's a different thing. I, yeah, I just mean. Yeah, you see, there's the problem. You see, you're making. You know, you've got personal exceptionalism. But I would never, ever put on a record at any volume and open up my balcony doors with the knowledge that other people were going to hear it without consenting to it. If I'm DJing in a club or a pub or if I'm playing on the radio, people are opting in. You can't Mm. opt out of other people's music in summertime. 
Well, that's true to say. I mean, listen, I, I, have, I have sympathy for you, and I, I find it difficult myself to um, curtail myself. I, I sometimes bring a little little music maker when I go out to a park, but I, I play it quietly, just, just for me and my friends. You play music in the park? Only quietly to me and my friends. Who are you? What kind of music do you play in the park? Unless it's reggae. Great if it's reggae, music. If it's reggae, yeah, it's reggae you see? Yeah. You want a bit of that, don't you? I liked I that period. To, I'm, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but there was a period in the 80s when ever EastEnders was on and there was always like an Aswad bass line coming through. The, 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 <laughs> boom, 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 boom. I thought, do, 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 do. And I loved that period. I thought that was, that was great. Then people talk fondly of, you know, the period in, in Brixton in the in the 80s where it was Lovers Rock coming out of every house, you know. Um, trying to think of any good examples. I used to uh, live next door, but one to a chap called Sean, and he, in the rave days, was very into banging techno, and he got a job, which meant that his alarm would go off at nine o'clock every morning, and he hooked it up to his stereo, so he would just kick in with like, and it certainly got him up quickly, but didn't make him popular in the street. <laughs> I just can't. When you play music in the park, right? Yeah. What's the What's the purpose of that? Is that to entertain your friends? Is that to, no, it's, Is it's, that like the equivalent of wearing a "If it ain't stiff, it ain't worth the fuck" T-shirt? You want to show people who you it's are. It's not. Maybe it's not that far off. But I tell you what it is. It's that I love music. I'm not like you. <laughs> <laughs> Mic Mike drop. <laughs> Murta, king of the DJs, prince of the pod, what goes around? Well, I am a man of many records and interests. Um, and every now and again, we don't normally actually talk about actual records when we do these little chats. I mean, we talk about, we talk about records and collections and things like that, but a specific uh, so I was gifted rather sweetly by a very nice man indeed, because I have no money, um, a copy of the Floating Points and Ferris Sanders oh, album. Oh, yes. And that is a beast from another another planet, isn't mm-hmm. it? Have you listened to it? I have, actually. Um, I, not to upstage you, but I've just been given my own music column at The Big Issue. And the first oh, thing I... jeez. <laughs> <laughs> The first thing I did was <laughs> sit down with Pharaoh Saunders and no, no, stroke I my hair while I mused on I didn't. Album. I just re- I wrote a piece about it. That was my first yeah. my first task. Um, well, so then, well congratulations be... on your big issue. Thank you very much. Very um, nice indeed. But uh, but yes, yeah, so I I wrote about it and it is it is uh, it is dazzling. Describe it because it is it's not it's not a passive listening thing. It is a an auditory no, experience. It's, it's all in. It's like a it's like a real immersive experience it's one of those ones where like uh, you see people raving about it and you think, oh my god this must be great it must be full of banging hooks and you know like mm. sort of real contemporary it's not like that at all mm. but what it is it's an album that uh, which is rare in today's world where it's still and it's quiet and it's very spacious and it's a real coming together of of generations you know you've got this 80 plus year old saxophonist who's you know, got a glittering career of 
pretty much inventing spiritual jazz and playing with the cold trains. And then you've got Sam from Floating Points, who's, who does his little reissues label, Melodies International. And Floating Points, I started getting into them when they were making sort of groovy little house music and synthesizer stuff. And then through his DJing at Plastic People, I think it all just expanded into a, a much more musical idea of what a DJ does. And certainly him and Kieran from uh, Fortet playing at Plastic People was the kind of a nightclub where you could go out and you could hear a, a banging 4-4 kick drum and then a few minutes later you could literally be dancing to Pharaoh Saunders. Mm. It's a, it's a game-changing way of doing things. Cause for so long... I certainly was tied in with um, with genre parties, you know, like like it's a house night, it's a it's a techno night, it's a, a rock and roll night, whatever it might be, soul night. It's like a, a little audio prison in many ways. It can be beautiful and it can be a, you can make it into a wonderful place. But as someone who likes all kinds of music, I always find that frustrating. What these guys did was they broke all that down, and them and people like Villa Lobos, they started throwing parties where you could play anything you know you could have Mafalda come on and play some rare Tropicana Portuguese soul and then have someone else come on and play like Hindu worshipful record or whatever but all of it mashes up and there's an acceptance of this this change and this acceptance of different styles that makes that whole scene very unique and what is wonderful is that somehow Mr Sam from Floating Points has managed to convey this to Ferris Saunders and these two generations have come together and made a really special ambient album. I would call it ambient because I think that would help people get their head around it. It's still, it has repeating motifs. Not a great deal happens, but when you give it your full attention, it seems like a lot happens. The orchestra, it's done with the London Symphony Orchestra, and maybe for half the record, you'd hardly know they were there. Mm. And then they just swell into being... And it's one of those ones where if you take the time to seal yourself off, turn off the phone, shut off the TV, close the blinds, turn it up, sit there in the dark and listen all the way through the way great music should be appreciated, then it just becomes a, a real piece about our time, about this last year especially, about the whole lockdown, the isolation, the weirdness of it all, and suddenly this kind of freedom of expression that's come out of it. And it, it's like a a really long sigh of relief to me. Yeah. I, it, it sorted my head out. And I, I really needed my head sorting out. I needed, I needed to have someone calm my brain down. And that's what this did. Mm. Yeah, that's the same kind of um, impact that it had on me. It reminded me very much, I discovered Ferris Sanders' music when I was failing university and I had a lot of space in my life <laughs> to sit and listen to <laughs> the creator has a master plan which is like you know 30 30 odd minutes long um and you know quite cacophonous in some places it is one of those records as well I mean it's a lot noisier than um the one with floating points but um it is one of those one of those ones that you can't listen to passively yeah it demands your full attention mm. if you have it on the background it would just be irritating or just not you wouldn't, you wouldn't even register. Like I think, I think yeah. with the, the floating points and, and Ferris Sanders one, you can have it on the background, and it is very nice. But you won't really get it. Mm. You won't mm. really get what that. You won't understand why anyone thinks it's a great album. Yeah, yeah. It's only when you surrender yourself totally and listen to it, you know, without interruption, without distraction, that you actually get it. And there aren't many records 
that A, I would give that time to and B, would actually deliver on that promise. Mm, yeah yeah so floating points in pharaoh sanders i mean that coming together is just kind of magical and then there's um last year there was gary bartz with maisha who were just this like london-based jazz crew very good but like how did these people get together and it's just Mm. it's so interesting thinking about like to me the idea that like those great jazz musicians who basically invented aspects of the genre still walk among us and like play live gigs and everything else Mm. that in itself is kind of mind-blowing and then to have these people making music with british kind of you know underground artists like it's just i mean it's 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 very true to to what those guys do anyway which is always try and push their sound forward but there's something very special about the fact that like it's UK artists and like not super well-known UK. I mean, obviously Floating Points is well-known, but, you know, not in a in a sort of, not at the same level as Pharaoh Sanders. Yeah, he's not um, Robbie Williams, is he? Yeah, well, no, <laughs> definitely not quite. One day. I think it's one of the great things about jazz is that jazz more than any other type of music, any other genre, um, brings together different generations. It's always yeah. been so, you know, Miles Davis would always have a lookout for the new kid on the block you know Charlie Parker was on the lookout oh there's John Coltrane oh there's Miles Davis oh there's Herbie Hancock when he's 18 he's just mm. you know tinkling away and they've always had that it's a tradition and, and it's a really strong cultural tradition of playing with people and therefore swapping ideas but it's also got this real fixation with bringing the new uh, with trying to push it forward trying to do something something different and there are there are things about Ferris Sanders colliding with with um floating points that that make this happen really well like the use of synthesizers uh from floating points in this piece is sublime and subtle and and powerful and really it's so suited to the music of Ferris Saunders in some ways. And and the and then the London Symphony Orchestra sort of wrapping around that again is like another layer of, of just uh, intricacy and, and and thought. And I really, I really appreciate how someone who's come from an electronic background, a very modern electronic background, has welded together with both a jazz legend and, you know, a massive orchestra. I can't imagine many rock bands working with, you know, a 20-year-old after being on the road for 40 years and giving them the same respect and space as Ferris Saunders has given floating points. No, but I suppose that's just because jazz and like particularly, I mean, you know, particularly spiritual jazz. And like like you say, there are so many jazz artists who have just been completely focused throughout their entire careers on finding the next new sound, whereas rock isn't really like that. It's more just like, let's make our hit and then play it a load of times. <laughs> Can you sound as much like Freddie Mercury as humanly possible? Yeah. You know, it's more just like, get it in the bag. Um, whereas this is just like the, the, the music comes from improvisation and from playing it and from innovating. Uh, but it's great because, you know, young people who are into Floating Points and his Melody International label, which is fantastic, by the way, um, they're going to find so much great stuff out there. And I think he's given Ferris Saunders now, uh, you know, a, a platform where people can, can look at that now and go, well, what else is there? And mm-hmm. just find so much treasure. And I love it when an album does that, when it opens up a whole new 
kind of area for people to explore. Mm. I remember, like, I mean, Graceland. I know you, you love Graceland, and uh, I, have, I have issues with its uh, morality. But it it did do that thing where suddenly people were listening to South African well exactly instrumentalists and and that's that's all very good, but um, we'll save that argument for another day. <laughs> Looking forward to that. <laughs> At least okay. we both agree on this gorgeous album. Yeah, well, Boy in the Bubble's a banger. <laughs> I'm talking about <laughs> floating points of Barry Sanders, but yes, yeah, it is. It's a wonderful thing, and I I recommend anyone who has. A spare 40 odd minutes to just do that. Do it like you watch a film. You know, when you watch a film, I mean, some people do watch films weird, <laughs> but you know, turn off the lights, concentrate, look at the screen, pay attention. Too often, music is not listened to in that way. Too often, music is in the background while you're doing something else, blah, blah, blah. And this isn't going to work like that. You have to, you have to put in the hard miles, and I think you'll be rewarded. So, Go get them, what goes around, fans. Imagine this, a searing vista of desert landscapes, pure blue skies, rugged men in 10-gallon hats riding the range, pickup trucks and honky-tonks, rodeo-riding good old boys twirling lassoes with their best girly by their side filing for divorce. Heartbreak and lonesome trails, yes, that's the sound of the big sky, country and western, and it's as American as apple pie. Except for some reason, the new home of country music is a lush green wet place without a rodeo to its name. Ireland, it seems, just loves country music, so much so they've even created their own version of it, country and Irish. It's not just the old fellas digging it either, there's a younger breed of new listeners steeped in the CDs of their parents who have begun adopting Americana as the music they love, the hipster cousin of traditional country. So why is it that the Emerald Isle is so taken with the genre? I mean, they love it, but don't mention Garth Brooks to Dublin City Council. So I'd like to introduce you to my dear friend, Rob Corcoran, who I've known for years and years, a fellow dub and an incredible singer-songwriter who's been writing and performing these amazing tracks in the league of Warren Zivon and Towns Van Zandt. In fact, Christy Moore, a legend of Irish music, recently picked up on one of his tracks and has incorporated it uh, into his live sets as well. Um, and we're keen to talk to Rob because Rob's music straddles a balance between country and Americana music just as easily as it falls into traditional Irish music and Irish songs and we wanted to explore with him how come Irish people identify so well with Americana music and country music. Rob Corcoran welcome to What Goes Around. Thank you very much and thank for that lovely intro. I guess let's start off with the kind of uh, the kind of basic question why do you think it is the country music and Americana music resonates so much with Irish people? Well, as you probably guessed, I, I do think about this a lot, and, and you mentioned that it kind of comes across in some way in my music, um, uh, and that kind of happens unconsciously, I think, because I think there's some there there are a few reasons for it. I, I would say I could probably talk about it for hours, but to break it down, the tone of country music, the themes of country music, and the structure of country music, I think, all fit into various aspects of Irish 
music and the Irish psyche and history. Historically, you know, they, they, they make it well known everywhere they go how historically they've been kind of put upon and uh, hard done by. And a result of that history, I think we've developed a kind of a, um, if you like, a fetish for melancholy. You might identify <laughs> with that, Deborah. Who doesn't have right? a fetish for melancholy? But certainly for generations, Ireland was a culture in which you couldn't or didn't really talk about feelings and emotions with much floweriness. Mm -hmm. They were, to quote, I think it was Dickens, an irrelevant fancy, you know. <laughs> yeah. Whereas um, the themes and the tone of country music, that kind of was an escape for the Irish people. I think if you look at country songs like um, Lefty Frizzell's The Long Black Veil, I remember listening to Johnny Cash talk about that song, and Johnny Cash thought it was an Irish folk song. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, there was someone killed neath the town hall light. There were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. There's a narrative, a storyteller. The, the structure of country music is very close to that. There may be deserts and, and the likes in American country, but there's also a lot of farming. Mm. There's a lot of farming, country towns, Friday night down at the barn dance. You know, those stereotypical things, which a lot of rural Ireland, they're going to kill me for this, hasn't really moved beyond. Mm. Nor should they, you know. Yeah, well, that's a, fair those enough, are great traditions, it? exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what they do. So I think it did speak thematically as, as well as it just being the tone and the, the melancholy and that kind of direct melancholy is a kind of a release for Irish people who weren't allowed the vocabulary to express these things in more colourful ways in a way, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, there was a time and a place. I think to what you were saying a second ago about the, the notion of um, storytelling in the music, because that is something that I can really see a connection with because the Irish folk music and the songs that my parents used to sing around the table those songs were all about telling a story it was always people and places and things that happened like you say very direct very real almost newsy and you do hear that in country music a lot coming back over from America that was the tradition of the Irish broadside wasn't it you know some bard would write something on certain events and and it would be passed around the storytelling was a massive part of it Mm. And and you can probably remember as well at those table sing songs, the reverence with which the the storytelling song commanded. You know, oh yeah, you had oh, to be silent for it because it was serious business. If my dad got a lyric wrong, my mum was on him like a ton of bricks. <laughs> the Irish lament is interesting you say that because if you listen to um, Hank Williams' um, "Alone and Forsaken," I don't mm. know if you've ever heard that song. No, I don't think that so. That to me is could be uh, an 18th century West of Ireland lament. It mm. is just so beautiful and uh, ghostly. You can hear the West of Ireland wind mm. whistling through the door in it almost. You can, mm. um, you can hear the banshees wail in the background. You know, it's, there's a keening and a pining in it. We met in the springtime when blossoms unfold. The pastures were green and the meadows were gold. 
Our love was in flower as summer grew on Her love like the leaves now have withered and gone The roses have faded, there's frost at my door The birds in the morning don't sing anymore The grass in the valley is starting to die And out in the darkness the whippoorwills cry Alone and forsaken by fate and by man Oh Lord, if you hear me, please hold my hand Oh, please understand My dad, for example, he was of that generation The, the, the 50s generation singing along with Tammy Winnett and Johnny Cash and all that sort of stuff. But there's been a few generations since then. And it, uh, and what's interesting as well is that it hasn't waned really at all. If anything, it's just kind of got bigger. It seems to very easily reinvent itself and keep going. It, it's like a, it, it's kind of everlasting. I think so. And I think even in the most kind of uh, processed, say, let's use Garth Brooks as the big totem pole of the kind of massively commercial songs but they still have those themes mm. yeah it's definitely a, a thing that's popped up in my mind is that the hardship is a real thing you know that, that there was a period where you know under colonial rule and all that and the potato famine etc etc you know the times were incredibly hard in Ireland and way after that even even for years right up into the 80s you know it was that yep. there was there was no work to be done there you know so you, you finished school and you had to leave and I think it's an interesting parallel when you think about those people settling the new world who literally arrive in this place where there is no infrastructure whatsoever. There is nothing but the hard earth and the weather, and that's it. And so, of course, you end up having these kind of slightly desolate, pining songs because you're alone in the world against, against everything. You're under the big sky. Yeah, and a lot of those settler groups that arrived were uh, those who came from great poverty as well or yeah, yeah. were escaping persecution from their homeland wherever it was. I'm a big believer in the psychology that's passed through generations and I think country music as much as if not more than any other genre can get a direct line to that that core that's otherwise kind of tucked very deep or dare I quote Lucinda Williams down where the spirit meets the bone I think that's so interesting and that almost gets kind of really succinctly to the root of what we're talking about which is solidarity you know it's like uh, in America they're feeling that same thing Irish people are identifying it with it over in Ireland you know they're both feeling that pain and it's like that's why it resonates it's a it's a solidarity of of feeling that same pain and same displacement. Thanks ever so much for talking to us today, Rob. It's brilliant. Thanks, Rob Corcoran. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks a million for having me, folks. It's been an absolute joy. Oh, Danny boy, oh, Danny boy, the pipes are cold. Oh, Danny boy. From Glen to Glen and even down the mountainside. The summer's gone and all the roads are falling. It's you, it's you must go and I must abide. But come ye back when the summer's in the meadow Or when the valley's hushed and even white with snow It's I'll be there in sunshine or in the shadow Oh Danny boy, oh Danny boy, I love you so What we're gonna, what we're gonna, what we're gonna do right here is go back Way back
back into time. Our guest today is an award-winning chef and writer who's credited with bringing Ghanaian food to the UK masses, winning praise and admiration from the likes of Nigella Lawson and sharing recipes across many facets of the world's media. You may have eaten her delicious peanut stew at her restaurant, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen in Brixton, or perused her wonderful cookbook of the same name. You may have read her recipes in The Guardian, seen her on the TED stage or on CBS Good Morning. She describes herself as a mixed-race black lesbian from a working-class immigrant background who works at the intersections of food, culture, identity and politics. And we're so delighted she's here to share her phonographic memories with us. Zoe Ajanyo, <laughs> welcome. Why are you giggling? That was very serious. No, it was very, very polished and I would love to meet that person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm privileged to know that person and uh, we're, we're truly glad you're here. Before we get stuck into your phonographic memories, where does music fit into that to that particular intersection, all of those things that, that you mentioned? Wow, it's all over it, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I grew up, well, you know, I have an Irish mother and a Ghanaian father mm-hmm. and that made for a beautifully eclectic soundtrack to my childhood. Music was huge because, you know, it was just always on, actually. (laughs) And my dad had a really, really big, big uh, collection of music. I mean, I had a house party when I was about 14, and whoever came... You know when you have a house party and you think, oh, you know, 20 people will come. I was a bit of a nerdy kid, so from my house party, I wanted to cook, so I made a buffet. (laughs) I don't know know how I... You know, I didn't... (laughs) It's kind of weird because I didn't think I had any interest in cooking. But I did a lot of cooking as a kid. Anyway, nobody cared about the buffet, obviously. But what they did want to do is trash my house. And they mm. did that effectively. And um, the following day, all of my dad's records and CDs were nicked. So somebody oh, no. at that party stole the entire collection. Um, but anyway, I had a passion for music, yeah. And, you know, growing up in Ireland a little bit, you know, all of my Irish family with all the folk mm-hmm. songs all the time and the country music. And then in our house, you know, anywhere between Bonnie Tyler and... Simply Red to Motown and Rolling Stones. I had a very, very wide exposure to music. I even, originally when I left London after law school, I went to Brighton to start a record label. That was what I was doing. Oh, wow. wow. I thought I was going to start a breaks label with some friends of mine, but they um, they apparently enjoyed weed much more than they wanted to start a record label. So <laughs> and you were just there I... making the buffet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that that sounds like the perfect label to be signed. Bit of trip hop in the background. Someone bringing you peanut stew. Gorgeous. That's yeah. that sign. So you must um, so have been yeah. quite into your music to to have was, um, attempted to to set up a record label. What was the? Did, is well, that what you? Is that the, a vision you had for yourself? It was my vision then when I was mm. twenty. Yeah, but um, as I said, the dream fell apart pretty quickly on arrival. I did end up working in music a bit, so I worked around events a lot. I actually ended up managing a band. I was a band manager for a while. Wow. And I was an event promoter as well. So I used to put on, I had a MoFo Promotions was the name of my music establishment. (laughs) And I used to promote other people's events. So I was known around, I don't know if you've ever been to, I'm sure you've been to Brighton, right? Mm. You know, in every corner, there's some raggedy looking person handing out flyers or posters. That was me. (laughs) (laughs) I earned my Brighton badge by stomping around Brighton doing like door-to-door delivering and all kinds of nonsense. And I got very familiar with all the pubs, clubs and bars 
of course, because I would go in to, you know, promote various things. But yeah, so music is a massive, has always been a massive part of my whole life, actually, until I started cooking, interestingly enough, and then it kind of just dropped off a bit. But but it's interesting to draw that parallel, because obviously, you know, I mean, you're not just a cook, like you're a, you have all of these, um, you know, you, you do all of these media appearances and you're very kind of, uh, you know, you've done a TED talk. You're very charismatic and good at putting yourself across in a certain way. You know, you're quite sort of media savvy. Do you think there's a parallel between that and having aspirations to work in music? I mean, that's very kind. All of those words were really kind. And um, I think I just like the sound of my own voice quite a lot. Who doesn't? <laughs> that's why we're all here. <laughs> like, my opinions are important and everybody must hear them. <laughs> Um, and some people let me share them so I'm appreciative of that I'll tell you where the synchronicity is actually I think Mm -hmm. it's in the trying to be or do something that isn't ordinary I think Mm -hmm. I've always had that Mm -hmm. desire is to you know find some some place to be that would kind of especially when I was a kid just take me a million miles away from where I my my situation then do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean so I was always I guess fantasizing about what would be you know, what would take me completely out of this? And for a while there, it was music. And then mm. quite accidentally, it became food. But um, yeah, I think creativity, I think having a creative outlet is the unifying theme in, in all of the things, really. Um, or indeed, curating other people's creativity, because that seems to be a consistent thread of mine as well. So, you know, either matching people up for partnerships or duos or relationships in business or in private or wherever that work. I, I seem to be good at that. It's like mm. finding things that connect together. And I seem to have been able to do the same thing with food. So, um, yeah, mm. I don't know, connecting people and um, being a loud mouth and, you know, wanting to have a creative voice in the world, I think. I think if you've ever had to stand outside a club at three in the morning and convince people to take pieces of paper from your hand, as I've done a fair bit of, you do, it does bring you out of your shell a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, I, worked, I did all the shit jobs as well. So I did like telesales and, oh my God, I had I had so many terrible, terrible jobs. But I'm, I'm, good, I'm good at selling. That is what is clear. I can sell anything to anybody, apparently. And... Um, if pushed, not that I want to, always, mm. <laughs> but I'm good at selling. I think that's a bit of, I don't know, got that Irish gift of the gab, I suppose, you know, a bit of charm. This is it. Side. It's, it's impressive that you're using those skills for good and not evil. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, really, it could go either way. Um, but what, what was the this that, that music um, and then cooking were helping you to escape from? You mentioned you were kind of a nerdy kid. Was it that mm. shyness that you were trying to sort of overcome? I don't, know. I don't know if people at school would have called me shy. I mean, mm. I was shy, but I've hid it quite well. I was a class clown kind of mm. thing. I think I was just trying to hide. Well, yeah, you know, when you're, I feel like working class kids, if they're bright and they show it, they get a hard time. Mm. I don't feel like that necessarily happened to me, but I was really um, aware of it. So I kind of used other things, mostly comedy, mm. to deflect. <laughs> but... Um, God, what was the actual question? This is the fucking down nostalgia lane there, back to school. That's where we want to take, to to hold your hand, take you down nostalgia lane. That's where we're going. to think of the bullies. I was massively into books and that was a huge kind of escape. And what I'm escaping, that was the question, was um, just a bit of a chaotic childhood, to be honest. Mm. And, um, you know, everyone, I mean, I don't want to harp on about it, but, you know, it was pretty challenging. Mm. And... 
you know, dad was in and out of prison and all kinds of shenanigans. You know, I'd be going to school one morning and old Bill would be knocking on the door looking for him. It's mm. like, okay, I'm just mm. going to get breakfast ready and take Natalie to school. <laughs> so there was a lot going on in my home life. So, yeah, I needed to um, escape. So books was where I went first and music pretty closely followed. So let's go to your first phonographic memory then. You've picked three. The first one, and you, you've mentioned that you don't mind which order we call them out in, so presumably they're not chronological. But the first one uh, is Otis Redding, Dock of the Bay. Mm. Where does this fit in terms of your, your memory? So this fits in mostly because this is from my dad's side of the music collection. Mm. Dad was such a weird mystery character to me. Like, I thought he was an international spy for the longest time. I thought, wow, Dad is dapper AF, and he's never here, and he always comes back with foreign coins. He must be a spy. But anyway, he had this really sophisticated music library, and that made me feel like, when I was listening to that music, it made me feel sophisticated, and it made me feel grown up. It made me feel cosmopolitan and international. And um, that track there... Like I used to play, I used to do a lot of chores when I was a kid. After the chores, you know, sometimes I'd be, and I've spent a lot, I was a latchkey kid, so I spent a lot of time on my own. <laughs> so, you know, I'd be doing all of the illegal activities that teenagers do and young adults do. So, I was, you know, I'd do, probably do the housework and um, open the back door garden, but leave the net just kind of so it covered the back door so I could see out, but nobody could see me and I could sit on the, <laughs> on like the stoop of the back door smoking under like veil of this neck curtain uh, blowing in the wind and I'll be listening to Otis and thinking yeah I'm a badass bitch <laughs> 13 years old smoking a stolen cigarette from the neighbour or something <laughs> sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes watching the ships roll in then I watch them roll away again, yeah I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay Cause I've had nothing to live for And look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna stick on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Old that there was a time when we used to like borrow sugar from neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that, like, that was how you got like, to know people, wasn't it? In the stuff of urban legends, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And my mum used to borrow, well, my mum and the neighbor Janet used to um, give each other fags when they were running out of fags, so it would mm. be really easy for me to go say, Oh, mum wants you know, no one's mum, mum borrow yeah. some fags and I'll just take them. Sit on the back. So sneaky, <laughs> I know. One of the reasons I actually started smoking was because of the Otis Redding song Cigarettes and Coffee. Oh, really? I, I, I just thought it, it sounded so brilliant. 
So I, I, yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, I've already got coffee. I just need the fags and I'm, I'm sorted. Then I can be out exactly. ready. And also it really suited my profile of what a writer was as well. Because mm. in my head, writers smoked and they mm. drank whiskey and they drank red wine. And that was my destiny. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> to smoke, um, drink a lot and travel a bit and you know, write brilliant, sparkling prose that would turn the world on its head. Um, obviously that didn't happen but you know there's still time <laughs> well like, it did you have your amazing cookbook which you know I do yeah is still uh, is still making waves all over the place yeah I mean I'm proud of my cookbook for sure but it's just not first it's, not, it's just not the book I thought that would you know well, it's hard to picture you with the with the cigarette kind of hanging over your your beautiful <laughs> gleaming hob, you know, making all this food. Yeah, fags and cooking don't really, really mix that <laughs> really. well. No, obviously it was one one or the other. But obviously, if, if Otis was in your dad's collection, and you know, it's uh, music like that is something that you associated so strongly with him. I want to go back to this party, this house party that you had when you were fourteen, mm-hmm. where all of his music got nicked. How furious mm-hmm. was he on a scale of one to ten? Do you know what? I don't even remember his reaction, honestly. Really? Um, it's weird, isn't it? But, but what happened, I remember, here's something I strongly remember from that party, is the feeling of, you know when you open the door and there's like just 20 hench, strange teenagers and you know God. that they're coming in regardless. <laughs> I remember that panic and fear. And I also remember somebody being sick in my bedroom upstairs and it coming through the ceiling into the living room. Oh. It was literally dripping through the ceiling. Um, and nobody, like everyone was just like, you know, teenagers, nobody gave a shit. They're drunk and yeah. just sliding through the sick. And I also remember that how they stole them was... Do you remember the, the covers you'd get on the settees, the zip cut? Um, yeah. If you can remember an, what an 80 sofa looks like. <laughs> they, so they took off the, uh, the, 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 the stuff around the cushions, you know, the coverings. And that's what they used, it seemed, to, just to, piled to, to out take them out. Because there were thousands. I mean, it was a, it was a huge, I mean, huge collection. Um, oh, and he also had these amazing, massive bass bins that got nicked. Um, I'm pretty uh. sure I probably got you know smacked around a bit and shouted at but um it's not he, he, his reaction to it weirdly is is not something that comes to mind freshly okay. it was probably my mum actually that went mental not my dad mm. she's probably worried about the sick coming through the ceiling i imagine oh she was definitely worried about that and the fact that, you know, <laughs> underage drinking having a party in the first place yeah yeah, yeah. i mean you, poor you, mom, you deserved it by the sounds of it <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah. that's the thing I remember most from teenage house parties. So much vomiting. Oh <laughs> Adult house parties are a lot more civilised in that regard. Uh, should we move on to your to your second uh, phonographic memory, which is um, uh, Kate Bush, Babushka. And actually, we were discussing this track before you came on the line, and I realised I hadn't seen the music video, so Eamon insisted I go and watch it. And my oh, yeah. God, that is a saucy video. <laughs> God, I can't remember it. Tell me. Oh, my as a as a teenage boy growing up in the 80s the sight of kate bush in a chainmail bra oh, dancing yeah. alongside a cello singing woho babushka babushka Ooh. that changed me forever <laughs> i don't think i had quite the same take on it well but... i tell you what it's a thing of beauty it's a thing of beauty um you know she was she was kind of the consummate pop star there wasn't she could do it all yeah, she could she dance she could sing she had a great sense of style she never got caught up in the in the kind of trivialities of pop music she always just did her thing and did it incredibly well 
So it's, she was it's kind an amazing, of groundbreaking, really. It was quite a very oh, yeah. unique sound, for Kate Bush, and also she was like a she's from Southeast as well, isn't she? She she has like humble roots and yeah, I love that, I that I, kind of story. She seems like a very down to earth person. I think as well, you know, when she became this incredible global phenomenon, she kind of just went, nah, I've had enough of that, and just stood back, and then you know was quiet for like. 18 years or something before she <laughs> came back and did some more stuff so she I'd knows she's an 18 year break <laughs> <laughs> my life's an 18 year break um, <laughs> so how did how did kate bush come into your life then with babushka my mum used to sing this to me so i mean and my mum used to um well she, a she just loved kate bush and it was just on all of kate bush was on all the time but particularly babushka babushka it just always whenever i hear it i just think of my mum kind of holding my face and cupping my face and stroking my face and you know it's, it's just this memory of lots of love from my mum and my mum would be going babushka 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 yeah yeah Aww. so that's what um she used to call me babushka and she used to sing that chorus when she was being you know very affectionate and loving and wonderful as mothers are. So yeah, that's what reminds me of um, Babushka. It just reminds me of my mum's love, really, and being coddled a bit and, you know, Aww. the lashings of attention you get when you're a very young child that kind of wanes a bit as you get older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort of take you back to that feeling now when you listen to it is it something that you have in your arsenal for when you're feeling a little bit down do you know I, it's not one that i pull out for that reason but now that you've made me think of that i should well the video might the video me. might contradict that a little bit <laughs> i certainly don't think of a mother's love when i watch it <laughs> yeah. but no it really does take me back to that age mm. and like being in that school uniform which was like a really bright green um you know, Roman Catholic school uniforms are yeah. extraordinary, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, very green with like a yellow and green tie. Mm. Um, it just, yeah, it just takes me back to that age and like just lots of like love and comfort and cuddling and yeah, very, yeah. very warm nostalgia. The nostalgia comes with that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, um, obviously, your mum being Irish. You mentioned spending some time in Ireland when you were a kid and getting into that whole Irish folk thing and, you know, the country music and stuff, which is obviously very popular there as well, but like a lot less cool than Otis Redding <laughs> and all of mm. the stuff maybe your dad was listening to. How did you reconcile that? Like, did, did, um, 
did the sort of Irish side of things inform your music taste as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. I mean, I thought it was cool, you know. Mm. I thought it was cool to go into the snug of a pub and have like 50 Irish people around you singing a song together. You're going to make me weep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the snugs? Do you remember that women and oh, children yeah. weren't allowed in the same part as the men? They always used to have like a half door, mm. a children-sized door. And <laughs> of course the children used it. So yeah, we'd always be sneaking into the like where the uncles were and the men so I could get my taste of Guinness or whatever. <laughs> but um yeah. but no, yeah, in the pub but also at home. And my aunt Anne, actually, God rest her soul, she's not with us anymore, but mm. she had an amazing singing voice. She was just Amazonian tall, un- uncharacteristically tall for an Irish woman. Mm-hmm. And she had um, massive, big red afro. And she had just such stature. And she had an incredible singing voice. So, um, and she was, you know, on the circuit kind of singing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, at home, at the bungalow, at any pub in any part of Ireland, wherever the family were, there was always like singing and like country music or folk songs. and I mean, there was always, there was a row as well, probably, but <laughs> <laughs> almost yeah. indistinguishable yeah. sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of all one and the same moment. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I I actually loved all of that. I loved Irish music. I loved get you know folk songs. I love acoustic music. That band I managed. So when I was in Brighton, other than promoting other people's events, the first thing I did was a, an acoustic session. So I got people to do unplugged versions um mm. to do folk versions of their their sets it was the, that was my first project as a music mm. person and a band the band i managed were called the Drukit dogs and they were like a post-punk new folk um mad arrangement of style of music so that def, you know so the irish influence was always as is, 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 is present as any mm. other influence you know and mm. I, I loved it all it all it, it, it's all come to inform you know, me as a human. Like, I, I didn't think that the Irish side of the music <laughs> collection was less worthy um, than Motown or rock or, you know, high life or, yeah. um, you know, it was all it was all good. It was all beautiful, creative. Beautiful I, I think I, I kind of had the same sort of uh, uh, upbringing, you know, Catholic, Catholic Irish family and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I think one of the things that really stands out is just um, that sense of... Um, communal singing do you know what i mean of, mm. of just you know it, it wasn't really our house was never full of records being played or maybe we'd have a cassette no. play on a sunday or whatever but every time the relatives were around we would end up singing some song from around the table until you never arguing about what the lyrics were and all that sort of stuff but yeah. it was it really informed the way i looked at music in that i i always felt that music should be shared and 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 passed around and i wanted to put music in front of people for that reason i think mm. and also you know just the storytelling aspect which is yes, really yes. like unequivocally clear in that kind of folk genre and that country genre there's always like a really clear beautiful story being told well it might not be beautiful it might be depressing and sad but, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, you know. they're, no, they're normally tragic aren't they? but, <laughs> but um I just always was fascinated by that as well, the power of the form as a narrative tool, you know. Was, um, and you you can listen to a beautiful track, you know, you can listen to a track and be moved to cry through tears of joy or through tears mm. of um, pain. Mm. You know, that, that whole concept through music was just 
has always captured my imagination, just how powerful it is as a medium for storytelling. I'm the kind of person as well, who I just love anything that's collective. So like mm. if I see, if I'm watching TV and I see like an advert and there's like 50 people dancing, synchronized dancing, and they could be selling toilet roll or dog food. I don't, it doesn't matter what they're selling, I will cry. I will cry <laughs> because of the unison and yeah. that how much how hard work it takes to get into that kind of unison. Like, I just find that incredibly moving. <laughs> While my dad had all of that music, he wasn't around that much. So it was kind of, mostly it was just me playing it because I had access to it. Right. So it wasn't a group activity. Whereas, you know, on the other side of the equation, it was always very much, yeah, as you say, it was a group activity. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that in terms of it being an Irish thing, because we had um, Sophie Scott, CBE on the podcast last series who is a neuroscientist and we talked to her about why certain music makes us cry uh, you know or sort of pushes our emotional buttons and uh, you, you talking about that just reminded me of um, I mean I'm obsessed with musicals and it's that mm. dancing in unison and singing in unison that just <laughs> sets me off the uh, last one I went to see I was a wreck afterwards and then on top of that they had a Kaylee going da- going on in the theatre oh. downstairs. This is in Soho. And my poor boy, when I was just sitting there, I was like, I couldn't. I was like snot running down my face. I couldn't cope with it. It, it really does get you like that. Like I've, I've got like a six-year-old daughter and we introduced her to Annie the Musical last week. And me and my wife were just bawling our eyes out all the way through. And the kid was like kind of really enjoying it and digging it. But like she kept turning around and seeing both of us with tears running down. I was just you all right, Mum and Dad? What's, what's going on? Also, <laughs> I wonder if this is something that... I mean, I think also there's just something inherently joyful about watching people having the time of their life doing something they love doing. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think that is also just incredibly moving. Because I have to just separate this out for a second, because perhaps I'm just like overly emotional human or I'm too sensitive. But I have been known... Do you remember Blockbusters TV show? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to be... I used to love that. And, you know, I've cried when people have won Blockbusters. <laughs> that is sweet. That is sweet. Just Blockbusters <laughs> or any other game show? You've done it! You've done it! You've got a pink <laughs> Gold run! Yes! That's I met Bob Holness once. Did you? Yeah, I did. Oh he was God. really nice and he signed a paper cup and did a little, little Blockbuster B on, underneath his signature oh, for that's me. that's sweet. And my favourite Bob Holness fact is that he was the first James. James Bond. No. What? True. On the radio, he was the very first James Bond before any of the films were made. So there you go. Well, you can understand why they got rid of him now. <laughs> Someone had to say it. <laughs> it's a, oh, a little nice bit guy. too polite for the actual, uh, you know, driving fast cars and smashing people with sticks and stuff. Oh, that's he so doesn't funny. give off rugged international no. man of mystery. But that's the beauty of radio. You wouldn't believe it, but I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not that type either. I'm, I'm really quite, quite demure. <laughs> um, it's so nice hearing you talk about music. I mean, there's, there's clearly all kinds of like facets of interest that you have you know not just music but but writing and reading and all of these different things sales as well what was it about about cooking and chefing that made you decide that this was the thing that you were gonna pursue yeah I mean it wasn't me that decided that Mm. you know it was the universe that kept um pulling me and pulling me to it you know Mm. in 2010 when it started in quote marks it was literally an opportunistic 
thing. I just come back from the States. I was broke. I spent all my savings <laughs> traveling and had an amazing time. And I was kicked out of my flat because it was used it's being used as a gallery space and I was just I was idle basically mm. you know and I found something to do I found an opportunity to make some money because what I knew is there were all these people in Hackney Wick and there was nowhere for them to eat so I thought mm. well, let me see if I can feed some of those fools um customers sorry <laughs> hey I was one of those <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you've got one in front of you be careful <laughs> I'm kidding um borrowed everything because we didn't have a kitchen at the time mm. so I borrowed a table borrowed a hob borrowed a pot you know went to the shops bought the stuff and you know the marketing ploy was Zoe's famous peanut butter stew which was obviously only famous to me and my mates but <laughs> the smell of it is it's a really piquant strong savory sweet deliciousness that you just can't avoid and mm. that that smell just drew people in and it created this like party outside the front door a little bit and a lot of the questions that came up from that were about you know a lot of people just hadn't heard of Ghana before they didn't know where it was on the map mm. they hadn't heard of any of the kinds of ingredients I was talking about and there was a genuine curiosity about it and if I'm you know if I'm honest I had no intention of satisfying that curiosity for people like at the time mm. it was like oh that's interesting problem but it's not my problem <laughs> because um, I'm not a chef or a caterer, you know. Mm. And it was just, it was meant to be that one-off event. Um, it kind of just, people loved it. And mm. I told people that I'd take their email addresses if I did it again. And so a year later, you know, go big or go home, basically. I was like, well, that was fun. Let's do it again, but let's do it bigger. So we turned my apartment into an actual restaurant. You know, we built loads of tables and chairs and all that. And people, you know, you were there. It was rammed. It was rammed it was solid. Mm. And people thought they were in a restaurant and trying to book for, you know, weeks ahead and months ahead. And I laughed. I laughed. I laughed. I thought wow. this is incredible. But, you know, Just... I was like, guys, this is my living room. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll take your um, email address. And to cut a very long story short, I ended up, you know, deciding that, oh, this is a good way to support myself through my MA because then I don't have to work for anybody else. I get to have fun. I get to meet all these people and, you know, talk to them and cook and share the culture and make money so that I can just focus on reading and writing for two years. Mm. So that's, you know, that was the main draw for it for me in the beginning. And it wasn't until I was, you know, but in that time it was getting picked up by blogs and things like that and then press caught hold of it. And once that happened... Um, it kind of just took on a life of its own and I was trying to run away from it a little bit to be honest in the beginning I was trying to move to Berlin to live my best bohemian writer life mm. but um, stupidly took on a kitchen residency to support myself while I did that mm. and then you know in Berlin I had all the German press coming down descending upon the kitchen suddenly and I was this like what the hell is going on the world and then it. I was getting yeah. to, you know dragged back to not dragged but I had a catering inquiries every you know I was coming back to London every two weeks so at that point I was like okay this is ridiculous this is obviously a business and the universe wants me to do it so why mm. so that you know so two years after 2010 and 2012 I had to really think about okay if this is a thing why am I doing it like what's the problem I'm solving and I worked out that the problem was that people just didn't have access there, there was nothing like that happening mm. in the London food scene so that's when I decided okay the mission here is to bring African food to the masses is to get it on people's radar so that people know about it and that will encourage you know other people to start cooking it and you know it will get a profile and it will grow and as 
as has happened. I manifested yeah. it, babes. <laughs> <laughs> it was meant to be. I still haven't manifested my million quid yet, but you know. That's coming. And then you're 18 years off. That's coming after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll be in a coffin then. Um, Don't say that. We need but to. Yeah. So it was really, it was the universe that drew, that, that brought it towards me. And it was only in the doing of it that I realized I was good at it. And it, it happened to harness all of my skill sets, right? So I'd been, I'd worked in marketing, I'd worked in PR, I'd worked in event management, I'd worked in event promotion, I'd worked in sales. Like I literally had like all of the strings to my bow apart from an actual culinary background. Um, and that was the hard part was like learning to cook um, beyond what I knew from my, my childhood recipes. Mm. Um, and that's why I went back to Ghana, or part of the reason why I went back to Ghana in 2013. And that's where the cookbook came from, was from that trip. So, you know, the cookbook is really, it's really this love letter to my experience of of Ghana and Ga- and my experience of being Ghanaian mm. as a mixed race human, mm. like Irish Ghanaian. And, and yeah, you know, and I called it Zoe's Ghana Kitchen because I just was, I was super concerned to not, you know, I knew there would be probably some haters having this light-skinned black woman cooking their their culture, because mm-hmm. that is a thing. Um, so I called it Zoe's Ghana Kitchen because I didn't want people to feel like I was trying to appropriate a culture that wasn't fully my own. And I really mm. wanted to be able to have my own stamp on it. So while in the beginning it was you know a handful of super traditional dishes, it really quickly became, after that trip, I got a lot of license to understand how... Um, how flexible the ingredients were and how different households cook things differently. Yeah. So, I, you know, I came back empowered with the sense of, yeah, I can do this. I can do whatever I want, actually. You know, <laughs> this is my interpretation. Um, and there you go. And then it ran away. And then I got a book deal. And then, yeah, all of it happened at once, kind of. And it's very much just from me having fun, doing something that I was enjoying doing. And I apparently was doing well. So, yeah. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> so, it's kind of funny. But uh, speaking of, of, you know, African culture, your final phonographic memory is mm. Fela, a water no get enemy. Can you chat to us yeah. about this track a little bit? I can, yeah. Everything. So one of the big, um, so it didn't surprise me, strangely, that my dad had simply read alongside the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the whole Motown, you know, collection. Mm. Um, but when I heard... And I think I think this is the first track I heard that was representative of West African music completely. I don't know, I must have been about six or seven. Ghanaian culture in particular was such a fascination to me because it, I wasn't immersed in it and I wasn't around it. And we didn't have any um, you know, family in London. So mm. it was different for the Irish side because, you know, we could go for 50 quid a flight. You could pop back and forth to Ireland practically three times a day if mm. you wanted to. But getting to Ghana was just a completely different story, obviously. So in the realms, in my world where I was, and I was an incredibly curious child anyway, which is why is also why I was such a bookworm. And mm. I'm a curious adult as well. But, you know, it just had this impact on me that was unlike all the other music and it was like oh wow this is like this is part of me like it's hard to explain like it has a different resonance inside like it really felt like um you know like it belonged to me and I belonged to it you know the the way it moved through me was different the way I responded to it was different you know the way I danced to it was different um and it was just all intuition it was just very intuitive and 
I don't know to get too woo-woo about it, but it was, <laughs> it was this really like strong kind of ancestral connection through this track. And I was just like, I'm just blown away by that connection. And then, you know, and then well, that's all I listened to for the next, I don't know, six months was all of his Afrobeats and highlight music and um, all of that stuff. I just got immersed in that for a while. It was just that different kind of connection to music that I didn't have before. Like I, I can connect with the emotion, obviously, you can connect with your lyrics, you can connect with the melody, but there was just something about this track that kind of just moved me in a different way inside, and mm-hmm. it kind of took over my body rather than... I, I almost like I wasn't responding. I didn't have control of the response, if that makes sense. Mm. What I mean by that is, like, there's a guy on Instagram who does Kiri Wellness. He does these really lovely morning workshops, breath workshops, and he always starts them with an African drumbeat. And when that drumbeat starts, like, I just automatically start moving. Like, my body will just automatically move to that kind of tone, that kind of sound, that kind of cadence, that kind of rhythm just automatically happens. Whereas, you know, Babushka Babushka might come on, Right to a breath workshop. <laughs> and I'll be like, oh, reminds me of mum, but I won't want to dance around the room to it necessarily. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's There's something cool. great about those um, Felicuti songs as well, in the way because they are they are very singular. They don't. I mean, they even for you know West African music, they, 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 he has his own style that is much copied and much much revered. But also, there's a lot of space. Do you know? What I mean, there's a lot of time involved. The, the tracks are mm. always really long, and they and they mm. they never hurry. You know, it's not like they're trying to fit things in. It's like the, the allowing the rhythms and the and the sort of um, the cadence of it all to build up is is a really integral part of how that music works. I think. Yeah, and it's the journey it takes you on because it is a journey, like in another kind of a way, um, like that storytelling we talked about. Mm. And also, there's something inher- you know, there's something inherently political about his his sound and his voice yeah, and his music. Definitely which adds a different texture and layer to it all. But also just, as you said, that kind of the space in the tracks, so much happens actually. There's such, there's, it's very layered music, isn't it? Um, yeah. And you, do, you, you go on a journey with it in, in kind of a different way than some other kind of music. But like I said, you can, you can go with the lyrics or you can go with the melody and you can go with, and sometimes you get to do all of it. 
but I think always with Fella and that style, you know, you just, you just, you, you, it's almost like you just pulled into it straight away and you don't really have a choice. And then you go on the journey with it. And then when it's over, you're like, I want to do it again. <laughs> it's like a roller coaster ride. It is a story driven uh, genre in its own way. You know, like mm. uh, the, when you look behind all the, you know, the fact that he does songs like Zombie uh, about the, the military in, in Nigeria and then Water and Ain't Got No Enemy and all that sort of thing. Mm. These are. They're, they're great dance tracks, but unlike a lot of uh, Western dance music, which is kind of throwaway, it, it's like the most serious dance music you can get. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's really got an, a message to give you. Yeah. And do you know what? Now that you've said that out loud, it's made me want to say that about my food. and my Because there is like, there's always been this kind of underlying political message here, right? Because part of, I think part of what drove me to around like when I had to think about Ghana Kitchen as a business rather than a hobby or a side project or a side hustle it was like um what what is what is it you want to say like do you know what I mean and I had grown up in the 80s with this really negative stereotype um coming out of by the media with the white media, generally speaking, white Western media, about Africa being this... No, it was always famine. It was always poverty. Yeah, it was yeah. always war. It was always like, these people don't know what they're doing. Like, we have to manage Africa, you know? Mm. And my experience through the music and the food and, <clears throat> and the culture was really different. And I wanted to represent that, you know? So in terms of the aesthetic and everything, it was very much wanting to embrace what a modern Africa represented and a modern Africa... Um, culturally had to offer not just its food but its music and you know that I made a playlist it's in the cookbook mm. <laughs> some of it not all of it but I made two playlists for the cookbook but just generally having this um, Ghana Kitchen playlist was this you know the food actually was always a vehicle for a bigger conversation mm. or a, a bigger there was a bigger narrative going on behind it it was like yes people don't know about West African food but also they've got the, the, the idea wrong actually about the whole of Africa and it's yeah. not a country it's a continent and each of these countries has amazing things going on culturally musically literature art mm. and they have their own diets, guys. So, yeah, there was always, like, a political message there, which, you know, now that I'm thinking on it and, you know, fella and all of that, it's like, well, yeah, there was always the politics inside of all of that, you know? Mm. And I think, you know, I've laboured the point a lot in podcasts around the world, but, you know, growing up as a working-class, you know, first-generation kid in England, when, you know, third culture and all that and mm. trying to assimilate but also trying to understand what my culture is because it wasn't English. Do you know what I mean? I didn't have English parents. I didn't yeah. know what Englishness was. So, you know, so Ghana Kitchen, I guess, helped me <clears throat> put all of that into, in, help make it all make sense but also let me have a political message in what I was doing. All that is to say that politics is intrinsic to everything I do, whether it's music, food, writing, you know, whatever it is. I am, I'm a political person. Mm. Yeah. How, how does that? Because obviously, you you get so much media coverage now, and you know whether you're writing something or being interviewed, like you say on podcasts like this one or like on TV, um, you know, does that kind of does that become a little bit of a burden, like feeling like your your sort of conduit through which people's knowledge about this stuff flows because I'm sure um 
it, it must make you a little bit jaded sometimes to feel like you're a person responsible for putting all of these messages across, like with your food, which you say is also political. You know, being a person who's introducing um, people who are ignorant about this stuff to Ghanaian food and everything that that entails. I actually love this. I mean, mm. this is the part of my job I probably love the most is like getting to tell people the, the why and mm. also um, explaining. I think in the beginning it was hard because there was nobody else doing it and I was like a lone voice in a sea of, you know, white nonsense, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the longest time it was really, really hard. And then... Um, and then it got hard for different reasons. So when 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 it, when you then start to have cut through, and people do actually start to listen to you, and you have managed to control your own narrative because you've been very firm about your mission statement and what you're doing. Hmm. Um, and but then yeah, then being catapulted into this position of oh you're the expert, and it's like I was never comfortable with that. You know hmm. this idea that I had to be the the expert, but that was very much because. That's what the media needed in cooking terms. Yeah. That's the where we were then, you know. There wasn't allowed to be, you couldn't have more than one black face at a time and you certainly mm-hmm. couldn't have more than one black face talking very specifically about West Africa or even more granularly about Ghana. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was a lot. Um, and not just because it was a lot of pressure on me, but also I was super aware of who was being excluded when that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was difficult because you know, you work really hard to make a name for yourself and get a position where you can have influence um, and be heard. But then you also want to be able to bring other people up with you. But it's literally, you know, it, it got to a point where it's literally like, okay, if I give this opportunity away, then, you know, I'm not going to eat. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. because it's like, <laughs> there's no, there, there just wasn't the, the space for there to be more than one voice at the time. I'm glad, to, you know, that has certainly changed now, mm. for sure, and I'm glad that it has. COVID kind of killed my catering business, as you know, so mm. I'm surviving mm. off of the small shop right now. But the gift of the last year for me has been the realisation is that I hosted a lot of conversations over the summer um, throughout all the lockdowns, mm. talking to people about food or wellness or mental health or politics or just talking a lot and it just made me realize doing all that stuff just how much I do enjoy that aspect of it actually and I do like challenging people and I do like trying to um I like building community and I like sharing ideas but I also like questioning things and having platforms and spaces to do all of that so and this this is an ongoing thing and I'm actually privileged to be in the position to have the platform to have these conversations and to make people think about these things perhaps that they wouldn't otherwise think about so you know I'm I'm very privileged and while it has had some sticky moments I'm grateful for the space to be able to contribute to that conversation yeah you've you've built that for yourself as well it's not it's not um not your standard privilege it's a, it's a quite an earned privilege it seems to me you've exactly. you've definitely taken a very small seed of an idea and grown it into a, a beautiful plant so well done you let's talk about your shop and where we can get it because you've obviously wet our appetite talking about all of this delicious food and the cookbook and not just that but the playlists inside the cookbook and then you know you have your online store with all the spices tell us where we can get a hold of some of this glorious stuff yeah, please. If you're in the UK, which I imagine you are, then you can order from uh, zoesgarnerkitchen.co.uk. So we have my house, 
So some really like easy, useful um, blends. I'm not going to do too much of a sales pitch here, but suya, keluene, and jollof, right? They, they are ingredients that are used in traditional dishes in Ghanaian cooking, but they're super pliable in lots of other contexts and arrangements. So you can use them in like non-Ghanaian cooking as well. And that was like, that's a big thing. So the shop is, you know, check out the shop basically. We've got some beautiful blends, beautiful salts, and some wonderful single origin um, ingredients like alligator pepper, guinea pepper, cubeb, like all very, very interesting, unique varieties of peppercorn that bring different flavor profiles. Um, and it's just fun to play with. But, you know, if you want to cook Ghanaian food, then please do also buy a signed copy of my cookbook on the same website um, <laughs> or come to a class. I don't know yeah. if there's any up online, but there are. Join the mailing list as well. That's a good one. Find out what's going on because I do keep busy. And also your Instagram page just makes my mouth water every time I scroll past it um, because there's so much delicious food being cooked on there. Delicious. At Ghana Kitchen, guys. Ghana is spelled G-H-A-N-A. <laughs> it's going to be tasty. That's the tagline. My second favourite thing about the food. <laughs> Ghana be tasty. Me and Jasmine what? almost had a fallout about who invented that tagline, but I had to admit it was her, I think. Oh, tasty. stroke of genius. I can't believe that wasn't you. You should have kept that to yourself. I know. Everything else is credited to you, though. It's <laughs> true. My name is all over the place. <laughs> Well, Zoe Ajanyo, thank you so, so much for sharing your phonographic memories with us. It's been such a pleasure and I really want to go and eat something. I spent most of lockdown learning how to make curry, but I think I think now I'm going to have to move on to Ghana and see what I can I can learn from you. Oh, you, you should try the peanut butter stew. Okay. Hand some to me to over make. the doorstep. Okay, yeah. we'll take the chilies out first, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Zoe. Thank you both very much. I really appreciate the time and space to have a Oh, thank you. What a pleasure. And yeah, I love yeah. this If you want to go wash, no water you go use. If you want cook soup, now what are you going to use? If your head is hot, now what are you going to If your child is grown, what are you going to use? Water kill your child, now what are you going to me back If you really loved us, you'd like and share and review and do nice things for us. We'd like that. We'd like you more if you did that. Why don't you do that? A review on Apple Podcasts could send us into the next level of the stratosphere of Podville. Please. Please, for the love of God, retweet us, share us, tell somebody about us. We need to grow together. Hey!